about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? 
He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. everyone. I'm going to continue reading from Mark chapter 9, um, from verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. But whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Good evening. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you yet, I look forward to chatting further after the, uh, the service Uh, It's my privilege to keep walking through Mark. Two weeks ago, I preached uh, on Mark 8, and Mark 8 and 9 are kind of the the sort of the pigeon pair, the centerpiece of Mark's gospel. If you missed it, that's okay, Uh, but I'd encourage you to read it. I reckon it's a really important chapter to read. I'd encourage you to keep your scriptures open uh, as we walk through it. Um, But where where we left off, as Mick pointed to already, as as he brought the readings to us, is that Jesus has just... Uh, shared with, uh, with Peter that, yes, he is the Messiah. Peter's recognized him as such. Um, as Alex prayed, often we have uh, kind of false understandings of what that means. Jesus corrects that when he says, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to die. And they're like, whoa, uh, I'm going to suffer. And, and not only that, but when, when you follow me, as you follow me, I want you too to take up your cross, to deny yourself and, and follow me. And that just head explosion material. They were not expecting uh, the cost 
They were not expecting that, that end point. And the reason why uh, I want to remind us of that is because we've got to ask the question, is Jesus worth it? Because if we don't have a good answer to that question, then the cost is too great. And through all the kind of things that happen in this life, the circumstances, the feels, if we don't have an answer to, is Jesus worth it? He will fade away as we follow our own heart's desires. This week, I've been chatting with a bunch of people asking that question, is Jesus worth it? And kind of unpacking what it means to deny yourself. And I I don't have enough time to kind of share all the stories I had. But as as we chatted, um, it, it really became apparent that for some of us, that's kind of we're really feeling the slow burn factor of that, of, the, of our life, of, of denying self and living for Jesus. Some of us are feeling the totality of that. Some of us are really wrestling with big decisions, the weight of those big decisions, where we're actually deciding to live for Jesus and not for self. Almost all the conversations express some kind of fear and doubt as you, kind of, as you take a step forward for Jesus and not for yourself, and you're not sure how it's going to work out. And a bunch of us expressed a deep frustration, almost angst, as we deny our heart's desires. And especially so when we're soaked in a culture that just says, live out your desires. And Jesus is saying, I want all of you. Is Jesus worth it? I wonder if the disciples, how they were making sense of this. I wonder if they started thinking they might have backed the wrong horse even. But the disciples have seen the goodness of Jesus. I mean, he's, he's a good guy. He's, kind of, he's doing good things for good purposes. But, but good is not enough. It doesn't speak deep enough into my heart. And, and when I think of what is good, I don't think of self-denying. I don't think of taking up my cross. We need a bigger category. We need to see who Jesus is. And that's where we have verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus speaks into their hearts, knowing their angst, their feels. He says, truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. He is going to gift a few of his disciples an experience of the power of the kingdom of God. That, that will shine God's glory into every crevice of their doubt, frustrations, confusion, that they might see who Jesus really is. And that's what happens. Six days later, Jesus goes up a mountain taking Peter, James, and John, and this is what happens. Now, this is kind of Raphael's painting from the 16th century, known from Wikipedia, not from my own art knowledge, as the most famous oil painting for at least three centuries. It's now hanging in the Vatican. Uh, it is an impressive painting. Now, I've just got to, I feel like I need to stop and just let you look at it for a bit. I had one person come up to me this morning and say, who do you think the 17 people are at the bottom? I was like, wow, you really were looking at that painting. But as, as we look at that painting, I mean, our eyes are drawn to a couple of things, right? I mean, obviously, Jesus at the center, Raphael is kind of using the, the lightness, the glory of Jesus. And as we should kind of look at Jesus as the centerpiece there, He's, he is transfigured in glory, transformed into glory. The disciples would see the divine reality of the Son of God, of the Messiah. We've got, we've got Moses and Elijah beside him, re- reminding us that Jesus didn't just appear in a vacuum, but as, as the culmination, as the climax to the whole Old Testament story. But just as Moses led uh, the, God's people out of Egypt, uh, they were redeemed uh, in, through the Exodus, through salvation, 
kind of Jesus is going to show us a greater redemption. Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, speaking to the hearts and minds of God's people through a very difficult season, also speaks of kind of a restoration. In fact, if we look at the very last words of the Old Testament, God, God speaks through Malachi to say, I will send you Elijah to restore the hearts of the children to the fathers and to the far from the fathers to the children. I long for that to happen, I tell you. But that Jesus is going to bring around that restoration as they all look at him, the centerpiece of the grand story. We've got the disciples underneath Jesus, just awestruck. We've got two random people on the side. Some people think maybe kind of there are a couple of villagers or friends of Raffaello. No one knows who they are. But then at the bottom, we have kind of the darkness in contrast, the chaos. There's the boy who is suffering, as we read about in that kind of sec- or in kind of Mark 4, 9, 14 onwards. And in that chaos, they are pointing to the glory of Jesus, longing for his power, for his glory to be made known in their predicament. It is a remarkable scene. Now, we're only going to have enough time to kind of do the first half of Mark 9, this picture even. Uh, as the chapters have been getting longer, so too have my sermons. It got to a point where I've got like, no, I can only do the first half, which is a shame because there's so much good stuff in the second, hard stuff even. But in the middle of this moment, Peter, Peter's head explodes again. I love that Peter does that. It makes me feel comfortable. He's a massive external processor, again, feeling very comfortable with Peter. And, and he says he wants to kind of Kodak moment the thing. He kind of wants to kind of domesticate. He wants to sort of just bask in that moment. And he says, there's three glorious people in front of me. Let me build three shelters. We just kind of might hang out in this, this moment. This is so good. You know, I was worried that kind of was all suffering doom and gloom, and I'm seeing the glory, I'm seeing the power. Let's just kind of stay in this moment. Now, as much as kind of it sounds funny, I, I do wonder if Peter's drawing on a deeper symbolism here of, of, of three tabernacles, of God dwelling with his people. But nonetheless, the kind of Jesus, the, the kind of scene cuts through that moment as, as a voice booms from the cloud. The voice of of the Father saying, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. This is so important for this moment because Peter and the disciples are wrestling with what it means to follow the suffering Messiah. When the Father speaks to the glorified, transfigured Jesus in that moment, he is saying, This one has my favor. His favor rests on Jesus and affirms the mission of Jesus to the cross. Now, we need to hear that too. Because just as Jesus invited a few disciples to experience the glory and the divine power of Jesus, so too do we need the encouragement in in walking with Jesus. You know, as you've kind of heard the call to deny yourself and as you've contemplated what that means, I want you to be reminded that, that it's this glory that's on offer. But our access to that glory is only through the cross. I mean, I do wonder why Jesus didn't just appear sort of day one in this kind of bedazzled kind of sense where people are like, wow, he looks amazing, I want some of that. But Jesus only appears like that when his true identity and his true mission are made known. Our access to glory is only through the cross because it's only through the cross that we will only truly be restored, reconciled with the Father. 
Now, as some of you are kind of carrying the weight of big decisions living for Jesus, some of you are struggling with the totality and the lifelong journey of denying yourself, some of you have felt that you've, you've been denied through circumstances or in following Jesus, I want you to, to be encouraged as the disciples are being encouraged that this Jesus that you follow has God's favor. And that favor is available to you as well. Jesus is showing you his glory into a a bigger, richer, deeper spiritual reality. And he wants you to, to persevere, to keep walking, to keep carrying the cross. Now, sort of by comparison, a bit of a funny comparison, compare and contrast kind of thing, I asked the internet how to persevere. I love this stuff. WikiHow. How good is WikiHow? If you ever want to know how to do something, um, how to persevere. There's a whole article. It went on for ages. Here's a few picks on how to persevere. Firstly, strengthen your resolve. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. <laughs> uh, love the pick. Uh, find that inner strength. Kind of when, when the going gets tough, get tougher inside, right? Number two, keep your cool. I mean, no one likes a stressy kind of person under the pump. You kind of want to keep cool. Uh, third, don't get dragged down by haters. And fourth, uh, figure out if you're enjoying life. That's a great advice, right? Could you imagine giving that advice to the disciples? <laughs> like after the transfiguration, they're kind of like, can I give you some extra advice on how to persevere? It just feels so lame. But when you kind of think about it, if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have kind of a, a bigger spiritual vision for life, if you don't have purpose, if you don't have a calling on your life, there isn't really anyone, anything that's worth trusting with your life, with your whole life. And so this is all you've got. All you have is that inner resolve. And so make that count. But despite the call to, to follow the suffering Messiah by taking up your cross, despite the foolishness of that, so it seems, there is a, a deeper glory to be experienced. And that's what the disciples are being invited into. That's what we are being invited to him so that we might listen to him and discover that glory for ourselves. I haven't made enough of that imperative. When the father says, this is my son whom I love, he then says, listen to him. You want to know how to persevere? Listen to him. As I've been chatting with people this week, I've come to realize the power of self-talk. You know, self-talk's that script that we, kind of, that we, that we run with, that we, that we play out. It's that kind of space in our head that kind of makes sense of what's going on. It drives our actions. You know, if you're looking for, kind of, for self-worth, you might say to yourself, uh, if only I can advance in my career, only then will I be worthy. Or, or, or if you're carrying a bunch of doubts, uh, often we ruminate over those doubts and, and they tear us apart. But Jesus, but the Father wants us to, to listen to Jesus, to cut through that self-talk. And as you listen to him, you will find your self-worth is defined in him. You will hear, despite your sins and your own self-awareness of the guilt that you carry, you will hear from Jesus, you are forgiven. Despite your doubts and your fears that we so easily play out, you will hear Jesus say, I have a plan for you. Despite your fragile sense of worth or maybe overconfident self-worth, 
you will hear from Jesus, you are mine. And the Father delights in you, as he does me. And despite the foolishness you feel in following the crucified Messiah, you will hear from him, I am with you. What is, what is God saying to you? What do you need to listen to in this moment? God knows what's going on for you. He has words of life and glory for you. What is he saying? Let's, let's lock that in as we sort of hit halfway, because it's only half the conversation. As Jesus invites us to experience the power of the kingdom, it starts with listening to Jesus, but then he invites us to, to, to lean into that, to talk back, to exercise faith. And as we kind of move to the second half of that picture and kind of the next part of this passage, it's kind of it's this crazy transition where, where Jesus comes down from that mountain, kind of all revealing in his glory. And just like that, it's back to normal. And he's walking down the mountain with the disciples and straight into chaos. I mean, put yourself in Jesus' shoes here for a moment. You've just shown kind of a few people who you really are in your most glorious sense. And then you kind of, you kind of come down from that and you kind of just are thrown straight into the chaos of, of unbelief, of frustration, of chaos, of confusion. And it reminds me of the scene in John 11 where, where Jesus raises up Lazarus from the dead and, and there's the shortest verse in the scriptures, Jesus wept. And I think that why he wept in that moment is not just because he was sad for his friend had died, because he knew it would have power to raise him, but it's just because he has just said to the crowd before him, I am the life and the resurrection. And as he looks at the grieving and the weeping, he sees that nobody sees him for who he is. So put yourself in Jesus' shoes in this moment as you come down from being transfigured on the mountain straight into this chaos. And the chaos is all around uh, the kind of the attempted healing of a boy who's having seizures. And the disciples haven't been able to kind of work it. They're not nearly having as much fun as the other ones up on the mountain. And Jesus, he, he, he laments, he grieves, you unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Here is the frustration of hopelessness amongst the crowd. We long for the glory and the power of the transfigured Jesus to be known amidst our chaos. How much more does Jesus long for his identity to be known among those who are blind? The father of the son says, uh, if you can do anything, take pity on us, help us. Here is this kind of crying out from someone who is, who is humble, who is just asking for the crumbs under, off the table kind of thing. But Jesus kind of still feeling a bit feisty here. He sort of picks up, if you can. Are you serious? I'm that guy that just got transfigured on the mountain. Everything is possible for the one who believes, he says. And the father replies with, I do believe. And help me with my unbelief. We're going to have to come back to that. That's a, that's a kind of strange saying. But Jesus picks up on that belief, however complicated it is, and heals the boy. And as the disciples are trying to make sense of this scene... <clears throat> 
They asked Jesus afterwards, we tried to heal him, why, why couldn't we? And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer. And these kind of, these extravagant statements that all things are possible for those who believe, and this, this kind only comes out by prayer, leaves us with some questions and a longing on how to connect the glory of Jesus with the chaos and neediness of our predicament. And the sole bridge between a frail humanity, us, and the sovereign and glorious God is faith. And particularly faith expressed in prayer, Jesus wants us to kind of press into in this passage. So that's as we kind of, as we drill into the second half of the, of the passage tonight, let's look at those two things, faith and prayer, as we ask, how do we, how do we tap into this, this glory, this power? Jesus is inviting us to explore that. Now, as I've said, the Father kind of gives a, a really interesting response. I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. So what does he, does he believe or does he not? And I suppose if we try and explore that, we can't help it but notice that, or kind of feel that we can't master faith. I mean, he doesn't come to Jesus by saying, I've got faith in you, uh, we're ready to go, let's kind of, let's get on with it. He says, I, I believe, uh, but I still have doubts, I've still got, I've still got concerns, frustrations, I don't know how it's all going to work out. So would you help me believe more, as it were? It's a, it's a personal and raw reflection to Jesus on what's going on for this father. I trust you enough to kind of call you into this. If you could do anything, could you help? But I haven't got it all worked out. I'm messy. And in that raw expression of faith, Jesus answers. Because it's not... It's not the strength of our faith that enables God to do his work. I mean, think of that really cliched example of sort of, you know, sitting on a chair. Uh, It doesn't matter whether I cautiously sit down on the chair or whether I throw myself onto the chair. It's the strength of the chair that holds me up. So you hear this kind of, this father is, is gingerly sitting down, cautiously sitting down, still in an act of faith, but he's, he's held up by the, by the power of Jesus because it's the object of our faith that God works through. It's the power of Jesus that delivers this boy here. And so in the complexity and rawness of the father's faith, Jesus is able to work great things through. When Jesus says all things are possible for those who believe, that leaves us kind of, I guess, open to a bunch of possibilities. But for anyone who's tried to exercise faith and pray about those kind of possibilities and been left in the ditch, as it were, been left undelivered, it makes us ask, is Jesus worth following? Are these real promises that we can cling to? First, let me say that prayer is is the verbal verbal response of faith. If we've been called to listen to Jesus, we respond to him with our words of prayer. It's a conversation because it's all about relationship with God. But as we try and make sense of what Jesus is calling us to do here, that all things are possible for those who believe, and this, this kind only comes out by prayer, I want to drill in a little bit more, and I'm going to use Paul Miller's book here, as, which I've been reading, as just a helpful guide to help unpack 
what is the nature of these extravagant promises about prayer? And I want to do this because these are, these are real questions that we have as we approach this. And as we long for the glory of the transfigured Jesus to be made known in our life. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. Paul, Paul uses, um, just to jump out of Mark's gospel here for a moment, Paul uses uh, James, the brother of Jesus, to help us unpack why it is that we might receive or might not receive the answers to our prayer as we explore this kind of longing for everything is possible. And James uh, chapter 4, verse 3, uh, James writes, You do not have because you do not ask God. So when you ask, why did I not receive? It's because you didn't ask, he says. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And as we think about this kind of the way he plots this out on, on this kind of little picture here, Jesus is inviting us to, to walk the, the narrow path of discipleship here, this, this raw expression of faith, trusting Jesus with extravagant things, inviting us to, to boldly pray, as it were. But there's these kind of cliffs on either side of that path. One cliff is kind of just not asking, which is functionally a disbelief in God. I don't trust God that he could, he could, he could do that, so I'm not going to ask him. Or, or kind of the other cliff is, is asking selfishly with wrong motives. And that's kind of like the Pharisees from the last chapter where they demanded a sign from Jesus. And Jesus denied them that. We can't, we can't demand of God. And the antidote to these two kind of falling off the cliffs that we might explore this, this middle road is actually found on the lips of Jesus at the end of Mark's gospel. Because as Jesus himself who prays just before he is crucified, Abba, Father. The most intimate expression of his relationship with his Father. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Those same words. Here is Jesus praying to the Father. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, he says. He doesn't want to go to the cross. I mean, who willingly wants to do that? It's a macabre instrument of torture. Take this from me, he pleads for the Father. Follows it up with, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, why does Jesus even ask for it to be taken away if he knows what the Father's will is, right? Except a real expression of his feelings and faith. He is exercising his relationship with the Father as he says, I don't want to do this. But in the next breath, Jesus avoids the asking selfishly by surrendering completely. Not my will, but yours. See, Jesus is really about his feelings. He doesn't try and control God with them, nor does he let them control him. He knows all things are possible. He expresses that in words to the Father and then completely surrenders to the Father. And when you think about it like this, you kind of tap into to the rawness, the realness of living for Jesus, of putting it all out before him, of asking extravagant things, knowing that the Father hears those and cares for you. See, prayer isn't simply about getting stuff from God, but, but getting more of God. And it's in the intimacy of that that we are invited to boldly ask 
for all things are possible. We won't get all things necessarily, but all things are possible. Now, my kids ask me for stuff all the time. My six-year-old just asked me for his birthday coming up, if he can get an iPhone 11 Pro. I said, absolutely not. (laughs) And so there's sometimes that we're going to ask and and God's just going to say no. Sometimes he's going to give us the kind of the weight and sometimes he's going to say yes. Sometimes we're going to be able to understand that as we understand the character of God, his glory, his will for our life. And sometimes we're just left in the dark on that. And we just have to hang on to your grace is sufficient. Your plan for my life, I trust. Your glory is good enough. That's all we've got left to hang on to. I was thinking about Paul Miller's own story that he shares in his book. Um, He's he's been writing out how God has been weaving his sovereign plan through his life, through his bold requests. And kind of what what Paul shares in his book is both a great encouragement to me, but also a rebuke because he's so disciplined in his prayer life. Um, In in the example he shares, he kind of looks looks through his deck of cards. I mean, he's old school, actually writes it out. Like he writes down what he's praying for, what he's boldly asking God from all things are possible. And and then over the coming years, he'll kind of add like um, scriptural promises. He'll add insights um, as, as he looks to Jesus. He'll add kind of the circumstances that God is changing because of his prayers. And as he's chatting with someone, uh, someone else who's skeptical about all this stuff, he just says, is this not all just coincidental? Is this kind of not just feel-good stuff for you, but a bunch of coincidences in the end? And Paul invites this skeptic. He said, just pick a card and let's talk about how God's worked in my life. That's sort of like a bit of a party trick, kind of out comes the deck. And he put, the, guy, the skeptic pulls one out at random, lest Paul kind of like pull a Swifty on him. And, and out comes the card where Paul was praying that God would open up a ministry for prayer. That's a beautiful prayer, right? And, and over the years, Paul was able to write down kind of what it was to, to wait for that to come true. He wrote down the promises he felt that God was giving him. And he ultimately wrote down the day when someone came up to him and gave him a substantial amount of money to start this prayer ministry, seeing Jesus, and kind of what ended up becoming books like this. And the skeptic looks at that and sort of just was was kind of a little bit taken aback, a little bit more somber perhaps. Because friends, God is inviting us to ask him for the, the power of the kingdom to be at work in our lives. He's inviting us to experience that, And that we might express our requests, our pursuit of God in the intimacy of the relationship we have with him. How did God answer Jesus' prayer? As Jesus said, take this cup away from me. All things are possible. God did not take it away from him. And Jesus was ultimately led to the cross where he died for us. But that was the master plan and and how God would restore all things. That's how the glory of God will ultimately be made known. That's how we know about the glory of God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice for us, we are forgiven. We have been given new life and we are now bound up in his glory. So friends, as you consider what it is to deny yourself, 
to take up your cross and follow Jesus. We are invited to see the joy and the glory of Jesus. And for the seasons where we can't see that, and it just feels like hard work, we are to trust him that this really is the anointed way. That this really is the glorious way. Because if it's good enough for Jesus, as God's favor rests on him, it's good enough for us. Because the same favor rests on us as God's children. Is that not an incredible promise to lean into? If you are feeling the weight of the cross, friends, let you be liberated by the joy of knowing that God's favor rests on you and he will ultimately bring you to glory. Let me pray that in. Father, we thank you for the reminder of who Jesus is. The Messiah who died for us. That we might be lifted up like he was after death. That we might be given new life like he was. That we might be glorified like he was. And that we might have your favor like he has. So, Father, lift up our hearts, give us joy that we might persevere. For you are glorious, and it's in the glorious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.